This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 169, Society and Economic Change. In 1536, Wales had about 278,000 inhabitants. Nowadays, that'd be less than the city of Cardiff, for example. The numbers rose to around 360,000 in about 1620 and perhaps to 500,000 by 1750. These rises happened even as disease, famine, and war continued to plague the local population. The stagnation of the population, which had been the case since the Black Death, was finally on an upward trajectory, something that would have significant consequence for Wales as this rise happened, in uneven ways as both wealth spread and poverty spread. And it also depended on land values and the industry you were working in. The intensification of rural settlement, growth in trade, aided in creating greater stability, while the Civil War period may have seen war once again arrive to the area and country of Wales, it did not last as long or created as damaging a circumstance as what had been earlier in the centuries. Also helping was the growing, diverse nature of economic activity in Wales. With this, Wales changed dramatically from strictly being a rural backwater into a much stronger place as England merged with her longtime enemy to the north to become the United Kingdom. One reason for this urbanization came from the emancipation of Welsh-speaking people thanks to the Act of Union and changes that led from it. Many Welsh began to feel free to move into the towns in the various parts of the country, and therefore the populations in those places started to tilt away from their largely English settlement. For example, in 1592, citizens of Swansea demanded and got Welsh language services as they saw as their right. In Denby, the declaration of the ascension of King James I was made in both English and Welsh. The need for these services and the need for this bilingualism shows just how much had changed since Henry VII assumed the throne in 1485. As some towns benefited from these new circumstances, the drastic change in the end of the marcher system meant that others stagnated. Mould, Hay, and Landovry were viewed as having decayed as their positions declined into just a few fortified castles in the middle of relative nowhere. Meanwhile, Carnarvon, Wrexham, grew by over 100% in population, and Swansea and Cardiff also experienced massive increases in a compact period of time. The economic drivers were still mostly rural, cattle, and sheep, and the use of these various resources in leather, wool, and meat. They remained central to the economy, obviously, but also 
a return of mining as a source of wealth began in earnest. The last time, of course, being during the Roman period when tin mining was very popular. Lead mining, coal mining, and iron smelting, and a wide range of crafts and professions offered an expanding opportunity for the young tradesmen. In the Tudor period, population growth probably outpaced economic growth, as would so often happen in Wales, leading to a lower standard of living. At the same time, inflation created by the demand for goods created a fourfold rise in prices between 1530 and 1640. Inflation, of course, being something that we can no doubt understand in the modern examples and how these situations of increasing inflation with increasing population growth would have consequences for society as a whole. Yet, even while there were those who were struggling, there was opportunity for those that lived on their lands and tried to take advantage of this increasing price to profit from sales, which would give them a nice little nest. Or in other cases, for those who could make a quick shilling, as there was a chance to lay down roots, as others had to give up their own dreams. So, in other words, you had people who were acquiring lands, some of which we'll talk about as an example later, due to marriages and other reasons and effectively acquiring more and more land wealth, something that was still incredibly important and would be for many, many years to come. So during these circumstances, the middle and gentry classes began to grow wealthy in Wales. Yet, even as they did, there was another category of a growing class of the landless. And this was due in part to the slow urbanization which was happening and moved by the forces of the wealthy who were buying up lands at an ever-increasing prices and selling it at the top price point, which meant that there wasn't the ability to buy these lands if you were living on mouth-to-mouth -mouth funding. The abject poor probably constituted 30% of the population at this time. They dwelt in one-roomed hovels, lacking windows and chimneys, and were subject to the statute of labors of 1563, which assumed that those without property were inherently unfree, and something meant that they were to be looked down upon for being poor, as if they were strictly the cause of their own misfortune, something again modern people might understand as these kind of conversations have happened in the past. Rulers and administrators began to fear the threat of this slowly increasing poorer class and decided that they had to intervene as best they could, or at least as best as they understood. Often the poor masses had been a base for discontent and more importantly to these men, a source of insurrection. In the time period, there was a perception of two types of poor people. Some were considered a deserving poor, a term for elderly and orphans who had no other help, and those who at some point could not work due to some form of either injury or disability. The so-called less deserving were known as the thriftless poor, those whose circumstances placed them in a position of poverty. This category was presented like it was just beggars, or people who were lazy, but often included families who were just unable to make ends meet. The politicians would eventually feel the need to step in to avoid any chance of insurrection, something that had happened a number of times during the centuries before. In 1601, the Poor Law was passed. It authorized every parish to raise rates to maintain the poor. 
to apprentice orphan children and to punish sturdy beggars. Now, to put this in context, a sturdy beggar was defined as an able-bodied beggar or recipient of charity or relief who is capable of earning his own living. So that is a fairly wide category in a time period of rapid inflation, increasing population, and increasing prices for land. And the ability to work is being limited by the amount of people in a similar position. For the working poor, like small farmers with their tiny properties, they may find making a go much more difficult. They would not benefit by these increasing costs and land holdings, and the hand-to-mouth living would mean that these small nuclear families would often rely on the help of neighbors to help keep them from dire consequences, something we look as a social benefit, but at the same time a sign of how bad things were when you had to go to your neighbor's cap in hand to ask for help. Often, these small landholders would also need to act as laborers for other farmers to help make some of the financial deficiencies at least a little less painful. It was at best a band-aid, but for a lot of families it was important. It was the difference between making a living or starving to death. At the time, in Wales, 50% of the population was made up of these lesser farmers and smallholders who could ill afford major swings in weather or costs. As an example, in richer areas, such as the Vale of Glamorgan, a smallholder could be relatively prosperous. But in the famine years, such as ha- happened in 1585 to 87, 1593 to 97, and 1620 to 23, as you can see quite often, many of them lived on the edge of poverty and starvation. The professional merchant class represented about 15% of the population, and it was a class that was upwardly mobile. As this was the beginnings of mercantilism and colonialism, they grew in both power and wealth over the coming centuries. The Act of Union of 1536 and 1543 devolved the administration of Wales, which often meant that Welsh gentry, these which included families who had become the leadership in the local communities, were now being put in charge of these areas. And they didn't necessarily have to be English. They could be Welsh families that resided there. There was no differentiation anymore between the two groups. And to be fair, they needed both buy-in from the English overlords and their Welsh community to keep these things stable. So if the gentry were Welsh, all the better to create stability because they had buy-in because they, they profited off of the leadership at the time. Those who were in those positions would profit because of the financial gains they would receive from holding these titles and also from the fact that it would keep outsiders from being involved in coming into the situation. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. 
What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over the years and years of both Norman and then English settlements, these families entered into Wales and they had had no connection with the people or the past. These families were outsiders in the traditional viewpoint. For some, it remained that way for their duration of their time in the country and may have stayed that way for many of their descendants. For others, time, intermarriage, and long-lasting relationships with the local populace saw them slowly, in some cases, become as much Welsh gentry as those who were born and raised and genetically were considered to be Welsh. They be- Even as these groups became more Anglicanized, there were still examples where the opposite occurred and some became more associated with an understanding of those that spoke Welsh and the residents that made up most of their land area. For the example that I'm about to use, I'm going to lean very heavily on work done by historian Sadie Jarrett, looking into the lives of at least one family in Wales. One of these English settler gentry were the Salisbury's, somebody we've mentioned before, Avrug and Bachmibud. I probably made that very poorly, but we'll go with that for the minute. They arrived in the Denbyshire area after the Edwardian conquest, and by the time of the Act of Union, far from being just another English invader or rich English family, they were now considered a Welsh gentry family, like so many others. As happened so frequently in the Marcher areas, and in the Principality during these years, after the invasion they had married into Welsh families. Because of these marriages, they attained more than one estate, which were originally held under Welsh tenure and thus subject to Welsh land laws, as well as the English laws that they started with. John Salisbury, born around 1450, purchased his own estate 
in the Denbyshire area from Welsh landholders. As he was one of the younger children in the family, he would have no chance of inheriting the existing lands, so thus couldn't add those to his portfolio. Instead, he regained these Welsh landholdings. Once again, in this period, land was under both Welsh law and English law, and it was illegal to sell land that belonged to Welsh families to non-Welsh people. John would use a mortgage type, which was gradually developed in the late medieval period, to circumvent the restrictions on the sale of Welsh lands. Effectively, they did a trade in which the current owner of the land paid a rent to him, which was the mortgage, and as soon as that was paid off, the land then was effectively his, which sounds very strange, but nonetheless, that's how it went. In 1482, John leased the house and land from its existing owner, Madog Ap Yewen, for £20, a ter- and a term of four years, which was continually renewed until, for some reason, Madog had repaid the £20. <laughs> this is where it gets a little confusing. In reality, Madog would never have to repay, nor was he really intended to repay the mortgage, and in effect, John bought Madog's estate for £20. Because of these workarounds, John was able to develop the Welsh land market to facilitate his own estate. During the reign of Henry VII, the whole purchase became recognized as John's land, and therefore he acquired it and was able to pass it on to his own children instead of having it held under Welsh law or separated under Welsh law, it was now his. A key point for most English families, as mentioned previously, in developing linkages in the area they lived, was becoming more and more important. And this was often done through marriages, typically marriages to other Welsh gentry. And as an example, the Salisbury's were no different in this regard. John Salisbury's son, Pierce, married the Welsh heiress, Margaret Wynne, who increased the Pierce's holdings as he acquired the Rugg estate in neighboring Marionethshire, and that was done through this marriage. As you can imagine, this marriage became a part of the Salisbury's identity as Welsh gentry family during the late medieval period. Through Margaret Wen, the Salisbury's became barons of Edirnion, successors to medieval Welsh lords who had survived the Edwardian conquest and held their lands as the Welsh barony. Pierce and Margaret's son, Robert, was described as the Baron of Edirnion in a deed of dated 1548. This title came with privileges, such as the right to hold a court, but it also gave the Salisbury's a distinguished Welsh ancestry. The Salisbury's used this title in their deeds, demonstrates that their value of it and their sense of self contributed to their status and to their identity. It was not simply as gentry, but specifically as Welsh gentry. Salisbury's recognized the advantages in being Welsh and what it gave their lineage. It also added to their status and to a claim of leadership in an area where normally they would obviously be seen as outsiders in these circumstances. As so many during the reign of Edward IV, Richard III, and Henry VII sought to become English to match the growing trend in court, 
among those Welsh gentry who hoped to gain entry into the upper realms of courtly life. By contrast, the Salisburys remained Welsh. After the Act of Union, for example, legal records demonstrate that the family continued to be Welsh speakers, an important feature when communicating with their servants and tenants. Something that might surprise some of the listeners of this podcast were that the exchange of language went both ways. In a 1574 Star Chamber suit, John Salebury, son of Pierce, was accused of murdering a Denbyshire Justice of the Peace. Most of John's co-defendants in the suit were part of his retinue, and they had sworn an oath to protect his property in this dispute against another gentleman. These defendants helped to try and keep Salesbury out of prison by claiming they could not understand the bailiff who arrived to arrest John because he only spoke English and they could only understand Welsh. Likely, this was a bit of cheeky exchange noted by the fact that it was probably in the upper levels of society. They would have a pretty good understanding of English, but nonetheless, it was a cover that they kept up when under prosecution, which led the jurors to protest, not understanding them. On the other hand, John Salisbury, the leader of the group, was able to speak Welsh to them, acting as the interpreter. Because, of course, John, like the murdered man, was a justice of the peace, he could also speak English, a requirement for the role. But his embrace of Welsh and its culture was fairly obvious, even in this era, when speaking Welsh would be seen as a disadvantage. In 1670, William Salisbury, obviously a descendant, sued his cousin, Dame Jane Bagot, for the ownership of their estates. When William first threatened to sue the Bagots for the estate, the Bagots expressed concern over the potential trial in Denbyshire. They received legal counsel advising them to be wary of the jealousy of the Welsh jury where an Englishman is concerned. The implication, of course, was that the local jury would favor the Welsh Salesburys over the English Bagots. 400 years after the Edwardian conquest and the Salesburys were now recognizably a Welsh family, they were not only one of us, but a part of the culture of the community. That, of course, does not mean that there were no examples of English gentry that entered Wales and became landholders and stayed completely English in their culture, language, and life. There are certainly many of them, to be sure. But what it does show, at least in this one instance, in this one exchange, is that it definitely would go both ways. And certainly, there are people in Wales now that owe their ancestry from coming elsewhere into Wales and absorbing and accepting themselves into the culture. I know many people who learned Welsh who weren't from Wales. My children, for example, were two of them. You have a lot of desire amongst people when they come to a new country to try and understand and learn the language of the people and learn the culture and the practices of those people. Certainly not all, but certainly some. And this would be the case for the English landholders trying to deal with a group that they wouldn't necessarily understand or accept in their own time period, but certainly as they married into them, had more and more descendants who were interlinked with them, it would become more and more common that them would become us and we when talking about Wales. 
And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you're so inclined, you can always help out the podcast by joining us on Patreon. I have been posting the transcripts of the episodes that I published up to uh, episode 50. And um, yeah, so you get to see my my scribble notes and and everything that goes into making this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Take care. And we will talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.